Does anybody need a Bible before we get started? Raise your hand if you need a Bible. One of the ushers will bring you a Bible. Anybody here need a Bible? One of the ushers will bring you a Bible. Raise your hand if you don't have one. Everybody got one? All right. Good. Good, good. All right. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, Paul, speaking to this church in Corinth, he spent, you know, a year and a half, some say 18 months, talking to them. And then he made several trips, obviously, and loved them. And he had to write them a letter of conduct, if I can say it that way. First Corinthians, as we know, which is really second Corinthians and second Corinthians is really like fourth Corinthians because we read about letters that have been sort of going back and forth, but we have no written copies of those. So obviously the Lord didn't need us to have those that way. But you know, how much he loved, just loved this church and how much he loved the people of God, a true pastor after God's own heart, Paul there. As we go to chapter three, Paul's going to begin, and if you didn't know the context that I just laid out, you'd you'd read verse one and two, and you might go, wow, is Paul laying into them a little bit? Do I need to commend you? Do I need more letters of recommendation from you? I mean, gosh, I know you. Why is he saying that again? Well, first of all, it's, it's not in any way condemning. It's really more of an enlightenment moment, I think, for that church in Corinth, because they put all of their their trust in, in, in all of their understanding and in, in, in sort of worldly things, right? They had really struggled. If you read 1 Corinthians, you know, there's sin issue, chapter 5, sexual morality, chapter 6, suing each other. I mean, just terrible things that were happening, right? Getting drunk at the communion table, the feast. I mean, terrible things that you'd think like even unbelievers wouldn't do those things, right? Um, so he, he wants to draw their attention back to the promises, to the hope and, and also to show them the fruit of what God has actually done. And it's right before them, and they had never even noticed it. So that, that's really what Paul's going to open up. It's not condescending. It's not browbeating. It's really Paul's attempt to say, hey, I really want to show you something so beautiful that you never saw before. Let's bow our head. We're going to pray, and then we'll get into the passage this morning. Father, I just thank you that, Lord, you are sovereign. I thank you for your holy word, Lord Jesus. I thank you that God is, you show us Paul's heart and you show us this church in Corinth, Lord, a bride, Lord, just the unity, Lord. I I think to the fact that we are written epistles to be known and read by men and women, Lord. Letters, as you would say. Thank you, God, that you haven't given us a trip of the law, that we're set free through liberty, Lord, freedom. So many today still trying to make it Jesus plus something, Lord. God, I pray you let that veil fall from their eyes. Let it fall from their hearts. Let them lay it down and just come in and sup with you, Lord. Just meet with you. Pure, intimate, just beautiful relationship, Jesus. That's our heart's desire here this morning. Lord, I pray you would allow us to lay whatever's down from this week at the cross at your feet right now, Jesus. And that we'd come away a lot lighter, Lord, not carrying all the weights and cares of this world. We really truly would, Lord, seek you and you would give us perfect rest. 
Speak to us this morning. Our hearts are ready. Our minds are tuned. Let us hear what your Spirit has to say. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen, amen. All right, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Please underline that in your Bibles. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, and then underline, of the heart. He's showing them something far different, and it's going to really contrast and compare between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's going to make his way through that in really verses 4 through 6, but he starts with such a beautiful opening. He says, do you really need these letters of commendation? Now, I want you to think back to what it would have been like, right? 2,000 plus years ago, right? Pony Express, they would have traveled where they needed to go. They would have, you know, came and they, they would have had a seal and that seal would have bore a mark, maybe a ring or a signet on a wax that would have borne a mark on a letter that no, it was from you, that it was genuine, that you sent it and you were going to carry the freight and you were going to be responsible for everything within that package. And nobody was going to monkey with the package. Nobody was going to mess with that package because they knew that you had certified it, so to speak. So these letters were very common in that day because ultimately we would think them as uh, maybe, hey, can you give me a recommendation? You know, we might ask for that today if we're going for a job. Would you write a referral for us or something like that, a letter of recommendation to you know, recommend us to a job? What are we really saying in that moment? We want somebody else to vouch for our character that they know us. Well, back in the day, it was similar. I mean, at the end of the day, what would have stopped anyone? Because vast differences, you have hundreds of miles. If somebody traveled to one area of Jerusalem and then went to Galilee or Jude or some other part of Israel, or even in this case, you know, Turkey, you know, another whole area, modern day, you know, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and they had traveled there and they said, oh, Paul sent me. And he wanted me to give you this letter. And oh, by the way, he's asking for financial support. Now, if you didn't know it was from Paul, what would you think? Yeah, right, right? I don't know you. Why am I going to do this? Anybody could take advantage of that. We could see manipulation. We could see a whole lot of things built into that. That's, that's exactly what Paul is trying to prevent, and that's what was common in the custom. But he's looking at them and he's saying, guys, do we really need to do this? Like I've been with you for like a year and a half. I've, I've come and seen you at least two or three times. Are we really at that place where we need to do this? You know, but Paul wasn't against it. I, I don't think he was against it, but I think with this church, he was kind of saying, do we really need to? You can look at Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3. <laughs> Chapter 16, verse 10 and 11, uh, even 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, Paul is actually going to give these letters a commendation. So Paul himself was well acquainted with them. But I think Paul's asking an obvious question here. Do we really need to commend ourselves again? If so, I want to show you what my letter of recommendation is. It's not what you think. He says, it's you. It's you. 
each and every one of you, it's you. That's right. You are our epistles. Paul has a letter of recommendation, but it's not written on paper. Paul says it's written where? On our hearts. And he says it's known and read by all men and women. You know, many of you know, know, five years ago, the Lord brought me from Rochester, New York, to drive each way four and a half hours. We did that for eight months, my wife and I and the kids. We went to Prosser Hall in Camp Hill, and we began with a simple Bible study, just kind of like we do now. We opened the Word of God and we read. And I remember traveling some four and a half, five hours to get down here on Wednesday. I started on a Wednesday. That's where the Lord led me. And I came in and, you know, being in the car like that and taking a half day of work trying to get down here. The kids were hungry and certainly they were going to go get some pizza and things like that. And I remember even thinking to myself, Lord, are they going to even make it? <laughs> Maybe they're going to be at the pizza parlor. You know, I can't blame them. They were hungry. You know, they've been in the you know, Lord, is, is even my wife and the kids good? And I, Lord, is there going to be anybody? And I remember him saying something. He whispered so gently in my ear. He says, even if it was one soul, even if it was one soul, where wouldn't you go for one soul? Would you go to Africa? Where, where wouldn't you go for one soul? And I remember thinking about that. And I, I remember that night I came in and I opened up the word of God. And you have to remember, just like anybody else, I was wondering, Lord, is, am I really hearing you? Are you really going to do this, Lord? You know, not that I was in disbelief, but I, I didn't know. I didn't know what God was doing. It's easy now, five years later, two services, you look back, oh, okay. But, but I didn't know. You know, I just put my kids in a vehicle. We just drove five hours and we're going to do this for eight months. I mean, you know, what's going on? And so clearly, so succinctly, teach my word, share my word. Let them be the most loved and well-taught individual, person, people, whatever it would be, plural, in the world. Use my word, not your wisdom or intellect. And I said, okay, I can, I can do that. And I think that night, I don't remember, I, I didn't, you know, conduct a census. I was pretty scared of censuses after David, so I didn't conduct a sentence like that again. I don't know, there might have been eight people there. And I remember thinking, Lord, if it was just one soul, it would have been worth it all. And as I looked up and I thought, well, Lord, clearly you're in this. We didn't even let people know, really. It's just, I don't know how people knew, but they knew. And I started thinking about that. And I said, Lord, that's exactly what you do with Paul and what you're giving to the church of Corinth. I mean, sure, it's easy now. You know, five years later, I look back to services, you're the fruit, right? That's what he's saying here to Paul. He's saying it's you. It's the body of Christ that gathered. Why did they gather? They didn't gather for a rock concert. They didn't gather because we had the best coffee or cafe, right? Or, or because we have all these great things. I mean, there's so many churches that are vying for that. And let them have it. That's of the world. I want nothing to do with that. What you and I have is the only thing we ever need. The word of God. It's the truth. It's the thing that keeps us from, from wandering or veering off. It's what calibrates us. It's, it's how we, it, it's our baloney meters. How do we know that a man isn't standing up there and saying, God says do this? Really? Pastor, where is it in my Bible? Right? 
And so I, I just think it's wonderful. It's beautiful that God has done this. And he looks and he says to the, to the Christians, you want your letter of recommendation? He says, look around. It's you. You are the fruit and the work of God. Jesus, if you want to look there in John chapter 10, if you want to hold your finger here, turn to John 10. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. We, as believers in Christ, hear the shepherd's voice. What's the primary way he communicates with us? Through his word. We recognize his voice because it's right before us. We know, don't we? When something sounds good or, you know, heaps that sort of tickling ear and kind of lathers you up, you get emotionalism and, you know, oh, yeah. But it's empty and void. It doesn't have his voice. It doesn't have his fingerprints or fragrance. It's a work of man. It's, it's, that, it's that molten calf all over again. It's all over again. It's another idol or Jesus plus something all over again. How many thousands of years later? Paul tells the Corinthians that they are a living letter of commendation. That, that, that these Christians actually validate his ministry or validate Paul's ministry. Aren't you glad that Paul didn't take out his diploma and point to a document and say, this is why? Aren't you glad that Paul didn't turn around and say, I'm the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Here's my Pharisee card. Got to take a look. It's what lets me into the Pharisee club of the month. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Aren't you glad? Because it's a great example. What does Paul do? Paul goes right back to the authority of God by the very works and fruit of God. He says, there's your authority. You want genuineness? You want integrity? Go to the master. Don't settle for anything less. He says, why would you want to settle for something less? Not that there's anything wrong with education, but that's not, that's not what validates us. What do you mean us? You just threw us in there. Hey, you're the pastor. Oh, no, 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 no. Hold your finger here. Turn to 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Go past the book of James. If you get to the book of 1 John, you've gone too far. 1 Peter 2.9. And what's he say? He says, but you, all of you here this morning, but you, if you're believers in Christ, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's you. 
Jesus changed our lives, and you all are the fruit of his ministry, the ministry of Jesus. Just as the Corinthian church was the fruit of Paul's ministry, you all are the fruit of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He saved you, he redeemed you, he's sanctifying you, and one day he will complete that process of glorification when you receive your glorified body. But he points out the requirement for ministering here, right? What is it? He said right in verse 3, look in your Bibles, please. It says, ministered by us. What does that mean, ministered by us? We're all a royal priesthood, a precious people, as he said, a chosen nation. Paul's telling us that it's an investment in others, that it begins with an investment in others. That's the first requirement. Paul's letter of recommendation was not written with a man-made pen, but with an instrument of God, a willing vessel. Somebody, as it says in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah specifically, he says, here I am, Lord, use me. Every one of us here can be that willing vessel. Every one of us here are ministers of God. That's not just to a clergy. It's the body of Christ. All of us. We are instrument of God. Paul was a willing vessel. And what did he say? He wrote into the lives of the people that he served, but not with ink of a pen or a quill. But what was that ink? It was the Holy Spirit. And what was the writing surface, he said? It was the tablet of our hearts. That's where he wrote. And he's still doing that 2,000 years later. He's still writing on our hearts. Now, now you know why I say this isn't, this isn't Paul turning around and bashing them. What do you mean we need another commendation? What do you? No, Paul's expressing his love. He's expressing what God has given him direct revelation. Jesus has shown him, I've given you the Holy Spirit. You were sealed. You were bought with a price. You are a willing vessel. Your life is no longer your own. You're blood bought. And God's word is that very instrument, that very thing that God uses, that ink through the Holy Spirit, is that that's written on your heart that allows you to carry out the ministry that he's placed before you, whatever that looks like in your jobs, in your homes, wherever you may be. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, he says in verse 4. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Underline that. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter cure kills, but the spirit does what? It gives life. What's Paul talking about here? Maybe this is the first time you've read this passage. I, I don't understand this letter and killing and spirit giving life. What, what is he talking about? Well, do you remember back in verse 16, just in chapter two, of, you know, one chapter back, he says to one are the aroma of death <laughs> leading to death and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And when you arrive at that point, what do we all say? Who is sufficient? Certainly not me, not any of us. Within ourselves, none of us have that sufficiency. But then as we read on in verse 
or chapter three, verse four, we start to five and six, we start to see where does that sufficiency come from? He says the sufficiency in verse five is from God. So the answer to the question is who is sufficient? All born believers, born again believers in Christ are sufficient. And what is their sufficiency? It's from God. And because of that sufficiency, he's made us sufficient as what? Look at verse 6. Ministers, which is exactly what we just read in 1 Peter 2.9. We're a royal priesthood, a precious people. We're ministering. We're preaching. We're teaching the word of God. Do you see that? Now, how did he begin this? He says, we have such trust through Christ toward God. That's where he starts. Not Again, not that we're sufficient ourselves. We, we get that. But Paul knows that he, only the Apostle Paul, and I just, you know, a man of the faith like this, you know, a giant of the faith, the Apostle Paul, even he reckons, hey, look, I'm nothing without Jesus. Jesus is my sufficiency. And he ministers a new covenant. You know, the idea of this, this new covenant, it was prophesied in, in Jeremiah. Please hold your finger here and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And we'll read about this covenant. Do you, do you know, friends, there, there are some maybe even here this morning that didn't know that the covenant that Jesus Christ, and I'll read it in Luke in a minute, the new covenant that he gave was actually prophesied to the Old Testament saints. To those Jews that were under the old covenant, under the law, that one day there would come a better covenant, a greater covenant. And he writes about that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt when he delivered them, right? That's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That sounds familiar. We just read about that in 2 Corinthians. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the new covenant you and I are partakers of. Well, how do you know that? Good question. Turn to Luke chapter 22, please. Luke chapter 22. I'd like to bring us to the Lord's Supper, the Passover Seder. That night, as we know, when Jesus was betrayed, Luke chapter 22, and I'd like to draw our attention to verse 20. Now, if you're familiar with the Seder, you know this was the third cup. It would have been the cup of redemption. It was, it was in the normal part of the process of the Seder, there were four cups. This is the third cup in that process of the Seder. We've, we've been blessed to have a Seder in the cafe 
We had Israel Cohen and he officiated the, the Seder. We'll look to do that again for – we couldn't accommodate any everybody. I think we could only fit 80 people in there and we had more people than we could fit in there. So we'll do it again so that everybody else gets a chance in the church and the different services to attend. And it's wonderful to see this. This is what Jesus was doing when he was instituting this Passover Seder. He was pointing to something very significant. But, but I want to draw our attention first to what he was ushering in the point of that Seder. Yes, it was to communicate his suffering and his death, but it was something poignant in verse 20. Likewise, and, and, he, and he chose the third cup to do it, the cup of redemption to be redeemed. They couldn't miss it. He also took the cup of, after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that has been shed for you. The cup of the what? The new covenant. The covenant that he had promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to all those that would receive. That covenant that today Israel, on the most part, not all, some Jews have become born-again believers, but on all have not believed. They have not believed in the testimony of Jesus. They, and we're going to read why. Paul will tell us why that is. But... This new covenant presents the terms by which we have a relationship with God. A centered, it's centered on Jesus, right? He was the host of that supper, that Seder. It was centered on him. You, you couldn't center it on anything else. I'm glad he wasn't in the field working because they would have said, see, he's picking wheat. We all need to go pick wheat to be saved. You know, he centered it solely on him. You couldn't miss it. This is what he's saying. It. It describes how we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how we have a relationship with God. He says, not of the letter. If you look back in 2 Corinthians, you can turn back now, verses 4 through 6. He says, it's not of the letter, but the Spirit. Remember I told you I'd come back and explain what does he mean by that? What Paul is contrasting here is the letter from the Spirit. Paul is going to demonstrate and show the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. The letter is going to represent the old covenant Old Testament law. The new covenant, when we were born again believers, Jesus did something before he ascended into heaven. He told his disciples specifically, he says, I must go so that I could send the paraclete. Who's the paraclete? The comforter, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to do what, he says. We read about it in our gospel. He says he is going to seal us. Do you remember in my introduction, I sort of was talking to you about a signet ring and sealing something and the importance of that. The whole point of something being sealed was to say that it wouldn't be tampered with. So who's going to try to tamper with God's vessel? No one, right? Because at the end of the day, only the person that's guaranteeing that parcel or that vessel that's where your faith and trust needs to be placed because he's the only one that has to guarantee that shipping. Just like if you were going to mail a parcel, uh, a stamp, you take it and you did fix it to a letter. You put the stamp on, you're sending it. It's declaring that you have paid postage to send that letter, right? It's the same idea here. When we were saved, Jesus Christ, because we're blood-bought, and vessels of his, no longer of our own, he sealed us with his spirit. 
That's our identity. That's our identification. We, we, we can no longer be seen by somebody else as being of Matthew Vanderven. No, no, no. Of Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters, living epistles to be known in men, read by men. How could you know that if you didn't recognize and there weren't fingerprints all over it of God? If you didn't have an aroma from God that way? That's what he's talking about here. He, he, he's describing, so he's going to compare the new and the old covenant and the, the letter of the law is in an outward sense. I mean, think about what the law was written on. Originally, it was written on tablets of stone, right? The letter of the law came by the old covenant. And, and it was good in itself, but it didn't give us any power to serve God, did it? And, and it did not change our heart. It, what did it do? It simply told us what to do. That, that's what really the, the law did. So Paul can say here, the the letter kills. Because what does the law do? It exposes our guilt, doesn't it? It kills and it convicts before God. Paul expressed this point in Romans. We were in Romans together a few years back. We read it together. I encourage you, if you weren't with us, to go to the website or the app and you can download and listen to the teaching. But for time's sake, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 7? I'd like us to look at this again. This isn't an isolated sentiment by Paul. No, he's been communicating this. I'd, I'd like you to look at chapter 7, and I really want to focus on verse 5 and 6. But just to give us context, I'm going to start at verse 1. So Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, speaking to the Jews or the Jew first, those that understand the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. Now, he's going to set these things up here in, in a marriage context. He's going to explain the bounds of marriage, you know, the idea that we all understand today that when you are married, God's design is that we'd be married for life, okay? Husband and wife. There are many factors of why sometimes that doesn't happen, and many of them sometimes beyond our control. But let's talk about a particular one that is definitely beyond our control, and that's death. We are married, husband and wife, until such a time as our spouse should die. And then we use the term, you're a widow or widower, right? And often at funerals or even with my own mother, when my mother was passing, I looked at her and said, so you're leaving me for a better man, you know? <laughs> and isn't that the truth? You're going to be with Jesus. And that's okay, you know? And whether it's your, your hubby or your dad or your uncle or your friend, he's going to be with his better man that way. Well, that's it's kind of in context here. Because he's going to talk about this and how you're bound under the law until one of those spouses dies. But once they die, certainly that spouse that's still alive can no longer be held or bound by that same law because they've been released from the law, haven't they? He's going to use that to explain the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's going to do it very systematically and very simply. Verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. 
But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she would be called what? An adulteress, because she would have committed adultery. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to what? The law. Do you see how he switches it now? He took out the spouse or the widow. He took out the one. He says, you too have become dead to something. Something has died in your very presence. And because it's, no, it's dead, you are no longer bound to that. And what is the thing he says that's dead to you now as new covenant believers? The law. The old covenant. He says, because you have a new covenant. And if you have a new covenant... Just like a husband, if he was to um, remarry and his wife was dead, he's released from that covenant of marriage, right? Because she's dead. No, he can rightfully remarry. And it's not adultery, as we just read here, right? That's what Paul was saying. But now Paul is saying, well, why would it be any different? Because that's under the law, that if we've been given a new covenant, why would we go back to the old covenant and hold on to that? No different than why would someone, you know, who would wishes to remarry and, and their husband or wife is passed, they're able to do such. And it's not against the law. Do you see what Paul did there? How he swapped that out so that they could see the true intention? He gave them an action sermon, something they could understand. Right? He says, because therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of who? Christ. It's through Jesus Christ you become dead to the law. Why? Because he ushered in a new covenant. We just read about that in Jeremiah 31 and 31, what was promised, and then what was actually committed and completed in Luke chapter 22, and ultimately on the cross at Calvary. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised... Now, just in case we start thinking, well, that means maybe we're confusing this. Maybe we're not talking about the resurrected Christ. No, no, no. Paul knows that. And the Holy Spirit knew that. And he says it here, just so you can't miss it. He says, and what? To him who was raised from the dead. Who is the first, first fruits of the resurrection? Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Can't be talking about anything else. That we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which we were aroused by the law. Isn't that funny? How true is that? I want you to think about children, young people. When you're told, don't touch that, what do you want to do? Touch it, right? Like even if you never thought about touching it, you want to touch it at that moment. Don't touch this. Okay. And your hand wants to touch it. Now let's room it from kids and let's bring it right to us right now. You still want to touch it right? That very law, you're laughing, that very law is, is, it almost entices us. Don't do this. Are you sure? Isn't that what happened with Eve, Eve, you know, Eve in the Garden of Eden? Can you really not eat of the, this tree and live? For surely you will die. Hmm. It's that beckoning, that challenging of it, right? It's drawing. He says, that's what it does. It's a, it, it, it just... It deceives you and it delivers you what, into this fruit of death, right? It says that you were aroused by the law. We're at work when our members to bear fruit to death, not to life. And he's going to build on more of this because he's going to say the law kills. The letter kills. What brings life again? 
the Spirit of God. That's what his point's going to be, right? But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of what? And there it is. The Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. It says it right there as well, just as it's written out in 2 Corinthians, so that we can't miss it, so that you would so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's what he's talking about. You can't miss it. He's comparing it very similarly there to what we just read in 2 Corinthians, right? That no longer do we live by the letter, but by the new covenant of the Spirit. That's what he's saying, okay? And it isn't that the Holy Spirit replaces the written law. We want to be careful here. Right? That's, that's not what he's saying. But it completes and fulfills the work of the written law. Where? Where does the Holy Spirit live? In our hearts, in us. It doesn't draw us away. It draws us to. The Spirit gives life. And with it, spiritual life. We, have a, a, we live in a righteous life, right? In Christ Jesus. Now, I've heard some take this passage. And maybe you have too. I think of some of the Seventh-day Adventists. I think of some cults. I think of, uh, I think of even the Charismania movement. I think of the New Apostolic Reformation movement who've taken this passage and they've twisted it and contorted it. Some of you may be like, what's he talking about? The letter. You know what they've tried to say the letter is? Even though we just went to Romans and the Word of God, what's the best commentary? The Bible. Because you go to another passage and another passage, as we just did, good hermeneutics, and it tells us exactly what Paul's talking about, so we can't get out of context. The Bible's the best commentary. But what they've done is they've tried to say that the letter is the Bible, and that we take the Bible too serious, that we read every line and every verse, and because we're literal and fundamentalists, we've grieved the Holy Spirit. You ever heard anybody say that? Or because we don't worship on a particular day of the week, we've grieved God and have broken his law. I was just talking this morning with someone about that very thing. And they've placed themselves, instead of the liberty that God has given us, what did they do? They placed themselves right back under what? A law. Now, I have to ask you questions in the way the Bible's explained it. A dog if a dog goes over there and vomits, should the dog return and eat the vomit? Does it give us such a repulsive thought and disgust in our mouth and minds right now? Yeah, that's exactly the illustration and image of returning back to a law. It should give us that same almost nauseousness. Like, why would I ever go back to what my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did? And it's not something that's got to be repeated over and over again. It was done. Telesai or teleo in the Greek. Complete. So why would we put him back on the cross? We wouldn't. So you get some of these movements, these cults. I mean, they, they, oh, it's got to be the day. Or they'll turn around and say, you know, you know what it is? You've grieved the Holy Spirit. But, but, but wait a minute. How did I do that? Because you're taking this Bible so literally. I mean, even some what they call themselves Christians. Maybe they're not disciples of Christ necessarily, but they will call themselves Christians and they will say, but this letter, I mean, golly, you're, you're, this is all you talk about? It's all you think about? You just think about, I mean, we don't worship our Bibles, we worship Jesus, but, but all you do is talk about Jesus. All you do is think about Jesus. 
don't you ever want to go back and do some things you used to do fun back in the days? Like we used to go out to the, you know, this place, that bar, do this, do that. Don't you want to go back to that? You know what I have in my mind and it repulses me and turns my stomach? What, remember, it's like a dog returning to what? It's vomit. It repulses me. Why would I want to go back to Egypt and the flesh pots? That's what Paul's, I mean, he's bringing that off. Why would we want to do that? Christ never commanded it. And so they'll take this ultra hyper charismatic movement and say, because you're grieving the spirit, you can't. Well, my Bible tells me, and there they go again. See, it's the letter. My Bible tells me that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit does everything with what? Decency and order. The Holy Spirit is not making you run around like a clown, nor throw yourself on the ground like a dog. I don't see any scriptural reference for that in anywhere in the Bible where the Holy Spirit overwhelms you to a point that he forces his own will upon you. God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. He never turns around and forces anybody. No, we read about the api or epi in the Greek where he comes upon you and gives giftings. I do believe the gifts are very much alive and well today but not against my will. I pray for boldness. I pray for the gift of healing. We need the gift today. For the gift of hell, I pray for all of these gifts. But they're all done with decency and in order. We're reading the Word of God, right? If somebody were to yell out right now, God just told me this. As I'm reading the Word, you're telling me God interrupts himself? That doesn't sound like decency and order to me. I'm a simple man, though. Maybe I don't understand, but, but it seems simple the way God's presented it. Things are done with decency and order. So, so I, I've heard where they try to say that. And you know what? They ultimately come down to the um, they come down to the simple fact they say, you know, you're fundamentalists. You've heard that term. You you believe the Bible. You're you're, you're obsessed. You're, you're you're Jesus freaks because you you love Jesus and it's all you talk, it's all you do, and you know, as though that's somehow trying to insult you. Instead of compliment you, I mean, or encourage you. I'm encouraged. I mean, as long as I'm not browbeating somebody with the word of God, which I, my Lord says that it's the fullness of truth and love, never compromise. As long as I'm not browbeating somebody, then that's a wonderful compliment and encouragement because Jesus is everything. I want you to think about John the Baptist, how he understood this. Do you remember in John chapter 3? How John the Baptist, well, there was a sort of a skirmish, something was going on. We don't know exactly what. Right around verses 24 through 27, we know that there was an issue that the Jews had been starting trouble with the disciples, John the Baptist's disciples at that time. Jesus had been over in another area. We're not told exactly where at. And he was doing what? He was baptizing. And so were his disciples. And John... And the Baptist was over here near, I think it's um, Ararian, somewhere near there. He was baptizing, okay? And these Jews came and stirred up a, a, an issue about purification, purity, purification. And he turned around and he said, to, the disciples came to John. They came to the, their pastor. What do we do? Very good. Okay, understandable. Good, good counsel. What do we do about this? You know, and he says, well, I told you before, I'm not the Christ. 
I was to come before him, but I'm not, I'm not the Christ. Jesus, the, the one I've shown you, he is the Christ. He's the one. And he says that I must decrease and he must increase. He says, do, do you understand? I mean, yes, if we're looking at it in context, what is he talking about? He's talking about his public ministry. But I suggest to you this morning, you don't declare that, John the Baptist, you don't do that unless it's settled in your heart privately already with the Lord, where you have realized, Lord, more of you, less of me. You don't get to that place on your own to be able to publicly declare that I must decrease and Lord, you must increase, ever decreasing as we would say today. Paul's talking about all of it. This is what he's trying to communicate to the, the Koreans. All of it brought together for someone to say that the word of God is the letter, not only is it bad hermeneutics and out of context, then what directs you? Your flesh? The world? The devil? It'll be one of the three. No, I think I'll leave that to the Lord. And the primary way God communicates to us is through what? Through his word, through the Bible. Let's go on in uh, chapter 3. Let's look at verse 7 here. He's now going to make this more and more clear. He's going to contrast between the Old and the New Testament. He's very, very clear here. But if the ministry of death, oh my, look what he calls it, written and engraved on stones. What was written and engraved on stones? The law, the Old Covenant. We get that, right? Again, you can't miss it. Was glorious. He calls it glorious here. Please circle that so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses. What? Now he's introducing Moses. And yes, Moses certainly was there at the giving of the law. But, but what's happening here? I, I'm, let's read through it, and then I'll, I'll help us kind of make our way through it. Because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation and glory... The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Sorry, I meant to say had, not and. For the ministry, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious, no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now he's taken it and made a big leap. He's telling us that the law was meant to do what? To pass away. But that the new covenant would do what? Would remain and be everlasting. It's eternal, right? But he says something strong, and I want to go back to this. I had you underline it. The ministry of death. I mean, that's pretty intense, right? I mean, but I, I want you to think about this from Paul's perspective. Is it wrong? Is it wrong for Paul to call this a ministry of death? Is it wrong for him to call the old covenant death? Because isn't that what it does in us? Isn't that what it does? It convicts us, right? It convicts guilty sinners before God so that we realize what? We need a Savior that can redeem us. He can sanctify us and give us the glorified bodies that we'll receive upon resurrection. So then why in verse 7 did he say it was glorious? Because there was glory associated with the giving of the law in the Old Covenant. What did God say? Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on 
holy ground. Holy ground. I want you to think about this. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16. Well, all the way really through chapter 20, verse 1. I want you to think about it for a minute. You know, remember, they, got, they, all the, they had thundering, earthquakes, smoke that sort of rested on the, their the trumpets, and then to hear the very voice of God himself. The Israelites weren't like, yeah, let's get up there. They, You know, 70 and Moses went, but what were they? The rest of them like, you go, Moses. We'll be back here. We got the tents. We'll watch the people. You go. You just, you know... Why? Because it was in, I mean, it would have been in awe to hear the thunderings and the voice of God and the earthquakes and the trumpets. It would have been, I mean, maybe even put shivers now, you know, the hair on your neck. You would have, wow, I'm standing, it's holy ground. It's glorious, right? Most of all, the glory of the Old Testament was shown where? In the face of Moses. In the glory of his countenance. Remember, he says, God, will you show me more of your glory? But we read, and I think that's really more towards Exodus chapter 34 than chapter 20, but Moses, after coming down, hearing that there was sin, right? Well, the way he knew it is he heard all the racket. He was coming down. He was going to give them the Ten Commandments. He, you know, they threw them down. They broke them, Right. Uh, chastised, rebuked Aaron and the flock for, you know, a church of two or three million at that point, when you think about it, the Israelites, is what are you doing? Well, it's they made me do it. Really? It's got your fingerprints on it, Aaron. Well, I know that, but it's, you know, no, it was sin. It was his sin, right? And it was the sin of the people. And for 40 days, because he was up with the Lord, getting the pattern for the tabernacle, not just the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. He received far more than that. But then what happens? Because they broke, where did he have to go back? All right, back up on Mount Sinai again, didn't he? And I saw how long was he up there for? 80 days, when you think about it, 40 and 40, 80 days, right? Without any water and without any food. Humanly impossible, a miraculous work of God. 40 days is humanly impossible because of the water, right? If it was just food, certainly. I mean, uh, uh, my pastor's pa dad did that. He, he's fasted for 30, 40 days. Next week, we're doing a church fast, right? We're doing a church fast Monday through Friday. We come together at the church on Friday. We break it with some soup. But we spend this time just pressing into Jesus, fasting, and, and just it's that intimacy drawing closer and closer. You know? It's beautiful. And, and so here he's showing us that it's this ministry of death, but yet it's glorious because he came away, Moses, with this face radiating the glory of God. And it's so much so that he had to put a veil over it. Now, if you read Exodus and you don't read 2 Corinthians here, and you didn't read on, I think it's around verse 13 or 14, you might have thought he put that veil on his face to hide, uh, basically, not to freak out the Israelites because he's like glowing, right? I mean, let's go back, right? There was no illumination, there was no light other than the sun and the moon. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have LEDs. They've never seen anything like this. For Moses to come down, bing, you know, like, you know, like a radiating sunburn, man. You know, nobody else has seen anything like that. You know, so much it almost looks like it was shown through to his face. So, so Moses puts the veil on. But, but if you didn't read 2 Corinthians 3, uh, like I said here, um, 13 or 14, you might think it was to hide his face because he didn't want to freak out the Israelites. But we learn clearly, what is Moses doing that for? 
to hide the fact that the glory is fading. Because where's the glory from? Is it from Moses or is it from God? God. So when he's on Mount Sinai and in the presence of God, oh yeah. But when he begins to step down and comes down with the people, he's no longer in the direct presence of that emanating glory like that. And so what happens? It begins to fade and Moses doesn't want anybody to see it. This is important. This is important. So this is what Moses is, is talking about, that you know, or sorry, Paul is talking about here. He's kind of going back and forth. The glory of the old covenant shining through the face of Moses was a fading glory, but the glory of the new covenant endures without fading. And if the old covenant, which brought death, had this glory, we should expect greater glory in the new covenant, right? Which brings the ministry and spiritual life. The, the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness, the old covenant is passing away, but the new covenant remains. No wonder the new covenant is a much glorious, much better covenant. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, speaking of the Pentateuch or the Old Testament, okay, a veil lies on their heart. Who's their heart? He's talking about the Jewish people, right? That way. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, if you're under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, if you hold on to that. Now, we read on Wednesdays, we go line by line, verse by verse through the Old Testament. He's not saying the Old Testament doesn't have value. I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians already um, that the Old Testament was given to us for examples that we might learn from those things. I, I think it's, what is it, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if I'm not mistaken. He says, um, you know, that rock was Christ. Now these things, verse 6, chapter 10, verse 6, now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they had also lusted. So certainly the Old Testament is very much alive and well for us today. We're just not under the ceremonial law. We're not under the 613 laws and premises that we're to get. Why? Because that's a fading it's fading away. It's temporal. We're of a covenant of eternity, eternal, through Jesus Christ that's been ushered through him. Right? That's what we see here. So he talks about the open and bold character of the new covenant in verses 12 through 16. The old covenant separated men from God. The new covenant brings us to God and enables us to come boldly to him. I want you to think about this for a minute. Previously in the tabernacle, you had a veil that separated the regular folks, other than that one day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that they could go, well, a priest could go in once for himself and then once again for the people, right? Where he would basically pray for the removal of sin for the nation, okay? But that veil was put up. Who put that veil up? Was that Aaron's decision or uh, Moses's decision or Joshua or anybody else? No. God declared that. He set the delimiter. He says, humanity, this is as far as you can come. And why did he set that there? Because what he says, the, the offering or the sacrifice of blood and uh, bull and goats don't satisfy. What does it do? It's a covering. The sacrificial system was always just a covering of sin. It never removed it. It didn't give us a new nature. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, 
wasn't just a covering. It was a complete removal. God no longer sees our sin, past, present, and future. He willingly chooses not to remember. Not only that, but he also gave us a new image, right? That we are now in the image and likeness of God, whereas in Genesis chapter 5, after the fall, we are now created in the image, we've gone through these passages, of man, right? Adam, right? Seth. So he restored that, that nature, making us more into the image of Christ, ever decreasing, amen? So when we look at this, and we go through and think about it, that veil was set up by God. Now, when Jesus Christ on the cross, it was finished and he was crucified and then he was resurrected. There was a huge thundering cloud, the whole thing again in the temple. And what happened? The shroud or the veil was torn from the top down, right? So that no man could sew it back up. Only God, right? And God has torn it down. What did he tear down through Jesus Christ? Do you realize that we can now enter into the Holy of Holies? That's what he says. That now we set the limit of how deep, how close, how intimate we come to God. Before he set up the delimiter, now he removed it and said, come, come as close as you will. Why? Because we're now righteous before him. How are we righteous? Begin, we've been given a new nature. Jesus Christ imputed his righteousness to us, hasn't he? It's not our righteousness. It's his. Jesus Christ has poured that out upon us. He's given that to us when we receive him as Lord and Savior. So we can enter into those holy holies. But you know the problem is? There are still some people that are in the outer courts. They don't want to go in. They're just where the priests are. But they don't want to go into where the holy of holies is, the atonement seat, that atonement, that covering, in our case, Jesus Christ's removal. They don't want to go in. There are people in the outer courts right? The courts just for the Jews without the priest. They, they don't want to go any further. There are people that are in the courts of the Gentiles that never want to go into that place. There are people that are still outside by the sacrifices and they never even want to go in to the tabernacle to meet with God. Why? When he said, come, all of you, all of you, right? He says, I'm going to give you rest. Come. You know, he talks about boldness here. I mean, he says, come boldly to him. We can, we can be bold when we tell the people of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering why you don't have that boldness this morning. My question is, have you prayed? Have you asked Jesus for that boldness? I mean, the apostle Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, had to pray for that boldness. If the apostles had to pray, I know I do. And in James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, you have not because you ask not. Certainly this isn't talking about somebody saying, up, I want a Bentley. That's not what we're talking about. In the will of God, God gave us the great commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, right? Go therefore, right? Not only in your neighborhood, your house, outermost parts of the world, the whole world, and tell people and proclaim and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we know that's his will to do that. So in asking for boldness to preach the gospel, would we in any way, could we even be out of the will of God? Certainly not. That's why James 4.2 is a guarantee in this particular case. Because it pertains to the will of God to proclaim Jesus. Now I know that passage is often misapplied, but that's not what we're talking about. Moses lacked boldness here. That's what Paul's really saying. If you really read it, it's heavy. Moses lacked boldness 
boldness in the context compared to Paul because the covenant that he had ministered under was fading away and, and fading in glory. Again, the passing glory of the old covenant contrasts with the enduring glory of the new covenant. Look at verse 14. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted. Paul says that most of the Jews of his day could not see the glory of Moses' ministry because it faded in comparison to the ministry of Jesus, which doesn't fade. Since the same veil that hid Moses' face now lies on the heart, they still think somehow that the law is superior in some way or has a superiority. Somehow it's more glorious. After all, when Jesus was challenged, what did they say? Our fathers, Moses. That was their defense, the law. And what did we read in Romans 7? And what did we read? The, lo the law does what? Kills. And the Spirit gives life. You see, the point is, it's a choice. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How did Paul understand this? Because Paul went through this himself on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Paul was sent after he had gotten papers to do what? To go and arrest all of the Christians in Damascus, didn't he? And then he was going to do what? He was going to bring them out and he was going to bring them to Jerusalem and have a big party for him, right? No. He's going to put them in prison and ultimately what was going to happen to them? They were going to be murdered. Murdered for their faith. I say this because today we're living in a world when you take the name of Jesus, people are very threatened. When you take your Bible and you read it, people are very threatened. Why aren't they threatened by any other book or anything else you'd see or read? Because this is true and they know it. That's the rub. It's the power unto salvation. You know, why aren't they trying to take, I don't know, something else out of the schools or prayers? That's why the Lord, this year in, our, in the Christian school here, we're, we're going from preschool to, to grade five this year. Because we have to stand before Jesus. It's a huge step of faith. But it's the word of God. We can't turn around and allow the world, you know, to just indoctrinate these kids. Because you know what it leads to? It leads to depression. It leads to anxiety. It leads to suicide. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to a, a glorious, I can do whatever I want and I feel great. It leads to condemnation. Because the same devil that'll trick you into it is the same one that'll condemn you once you actually give in to the lust. He says, it's for until this day that that same veil remains unlifted. This is why it's so difficult to witness to the Jew. This is why it's so difficult. Jewish ministry is so difficult because they still have that veil of Moses because they don't want it to see the departing glory and they don't want anybody to know. Because what's a veil do? A veil exposes everything or does a veil hide? Yeah, yeah. That's why there's such a need for Jewish evangelism. It's difficult because the veil lies on their heart. Unless they allow God to do a work in them. Unless they turn to the Lord, this veil will never be taken away. They have to turn to Jesus, Messiah. The stakes are high. We need to be praying for the Jewish people. We need to be praying for the nation of Israel. We need to be praying for Harrisburg. We need to be praying for people on our shores. 
because they've got different veils. For whatever reason, there some Christians aren't even going into the inner courts, the Holy of Holies. They're content out here. They want to party. They're not, they're not looking for discipleship. They're not looking for oppression and affliction. When that happens, they no, this is this Christianity is no good for me. It's it's too difficult. What do you mean? It's your life. It's not something that's turned on and off, enabled or disabled. Let's finish up here. Now the Lord is in the spirit. Or sorry, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, we sing a song, what do we say? Freedom, liberty, low, okay, same idea. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So the liberty of the new covenant is transforming glory of the new covenant, if I can say it that way. That, that liberty is the transforming glory. When Moses went into God's presence, he had the liberty to take off the veil, didn't he? Didn't he? It wasn't until he came down to the people that he put that veil on. The Lord gave him this liberty. Now, we have been given someone. Who have we been given? The Holy Spirit. Remember, we're sealed. That's why in my introduction I mentioned and kind of brought that back to we're sealed by God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So he's living in us. 1 Corinthians 4 tells us. 1 Corinthians 6 says not only is he living in us individually, but corporately as the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, right? So we have been given that liberty in that new covenant because the Lord is living in us. Just as Moses had liberty to relate to God without the veil in the presence, so we have the liberty because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not giving the believer to license, uh, a license access, you know, to do anything they want because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Not where the Spirit of the Lord isn't, right? But where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. You know, you, you have this anti-nominalism today where I can do whatever I want whenever I want. No, we still have to obey the commandments and statutes of God. We still, while we're not under the law... We're still required to not murder. We're not to steal. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to do any of these things. We're still very much under the commandments and statutes of God. They're not mutually exclusive. So we have a liberty and a relationship with God. What Jesus did through the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in us, that we, we would never disobey what the Spirit says in the Word of God. You know, that's a perversion of our liberty that God has given us. And that's certainly not spirit-led liberty. I think we can all agree on that. And in verse 18, when one turns to the Lord, what did he say? The veil is taken away. We read that in verse 16, right also. And we are left with an unveiled face. A relationship with Jesus is a relationship of transforming power. He says something here, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord. That word beholding is a, is, a, is a call to action, actually. You don't just behold. You have to behold. It just doesn't happen, right? Let me give you the example. You walk in front of a mirror. You're passing by in the house, maybe before you head out for the morning. Even if you take a quick look, what do you do? You willingly go, and then you keep moving, right? Or whatever your thing looks like, yeah. When you, maybe you fix your quaff, I don't know, you do or whatever, right? Whatever that looks like for you all in the morning. 
Oh no, Pastor, that's vain. I don't do that. Really. If I took a picture right now, I told this to first service. If I took a picture of all of you right now and I took a panoramic and I showed the picture, who's the first one you're going to look for? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Praise the Lord. Fair enough. Right. And then our spouse, right? Or our kids or somebody, right? It's, it's, it's okay. He says, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord. We can see the glory of the Lord, but we cannot see his glory perfectly. That's the point. When I was teaching through 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I was sharing ancient mirrors were made of polished metal. And they gave a sort of cloudy, cloudy, fuzzy, distorted image, right? Paul says we can see the glory of the Lord, but we can't see it perfectly yet. We're being transformed and we behold the glory of God you're waiting for the but, but we can't see it perfectly yet. That's what he's saying. We're being transformed. God will change our lives, but he's going to change us from the inside out. Through the old covenant, had its, though the old covenant had its glory, it could never transform, transform lives, right? The law couldn't do that, the old covenant. God uses the new covenant to make us transformed into the same image as Jesus, not just good people. We're being transformed into a people of agape, that's love, unconditional love, grace, peace, and righteousness. You see, this is God's great design in our salvation. From whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into what? The image of his son. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We are transformed by the time spent with the Lord. The sanctification process that our Lord does is from the inside out, and it, because it's under the new covenant, it does what? It lasts forever. It's not temporal. So why do so many people today spend so much time and focus on the temporal? Beauty is fading. Mammon, can't take it with you. There's no U-Hauls to heaven, right? I mean, look at it. Even Christians or go by the name of Christ, are doing this. But it says, behold, we must, be do, we must do something here. We must behold. The word means to, to make a careful study. That's what that word means. Not just walking by that mirror, like I said, to take a quick look. You don't just do that. You look with intention. Oh, this is out of place, or what have you. Everyone here does that. Why wouldn't we do that with the word of God? Why, why, we can be transformed by the glory of the Lord, but only if we're willing. We have to study it, allow it to shape us, right? We, we, we have to let it take our thoughts, our intentions, our behavior, our responses, and it all has to be given to Him. Because that's what it really means to decrease and really allow Him to increase. You're going to have a master. Whom do you serve? Amen. Let's stand. I'd like to ask the musicians to come forward. We're going to close with a song. Spend a little more time. We went a little bit longer here today, this morning. But it's, it's so important because God wants us to have such a, a deep understanding of how this law could never save. And there's just so many people peddling a false doctrine based on the law. And, and God wants to set us free, man. And he wants us not focused on the temporal, but looking at the things of the eternal. So 
we're going to pray, and then the musicians are going to lead us in a closing song, and then we'll dismiss right from there, okay? Um, so let's just bow our heads and pray. Lord, as we just read earlier, who is sufficient for these things? God, we know it's only you uh, through us, Jesus, that makes us sufficient. We have no sufficiency in ourselves. You told us that, Lord, you would send us as sheep in the midst of wolves. You told us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You told us to beware of men, Lord. Oh, God, protect us from the lies and wiles of a carnal man. Gird our minds, Lord, with your word to protect us from the lies and deception of the world, our flesh, and the devil, Lord. May we never fail victim to experience over Scripture, God. Please protect us. Mysticism over doctrine. Feelings and emotions over truth. God, thank you for a new and better covenant that we receive through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Lord, you are truly the way, the truth, and the life. God, I pray here this morning that, Lord, you would deliver all those who have a spirit of fear or unsettled in their heart in some way. Lord, deliver us from that. You give us power and love and a sound mind. We believe. I love you, Lord. You are our strength. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed, amen. Let's worship our Lord. Give him our best. Thank you.